You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right, what's up, family? Good to see you guys. My name is Adam, one of our pastors here. Glad to have you with us if you are new. We are coming off of a members weekend. We call it uh, kickoff weekend. As we look to a new ministry year, we tend to operate as a church around the school system calendar. And so we think of the fall as starting a new year off. And we, over the past three or four days, have been doing a heavy dose of teaching and learning. We did uh, a pretty deep dive into some cultural analysis looking at secularism and how we are affected by the time and place that we live today. And so I know for those of you who are members, you're probably right with me in that your head is spinning and your brain feels a little mushy. That's exactly where I am. I'm having a hard time thinking about much else. My mind is so already full of all the stuff that we've been thinking about. And so the good news is for us today, I'm going to keep it very uh, straightforward and matter of fact, and I'll probably even stick to my script a good bit to make sure I don't say something that gets me fired. So that'll be the goal. We're starting a new series today called In Columbia As It Is In Heaven. I just want to introduce the concepts and lay some foundation for us that we will build off of in the weeks to come. So our aim for this series is to clarify for, uh, for all of us what exactly it is that we're trying to accomplish as a church, and even more specifically, what kinds of people we're trying to become. So our, our goal, our prayer is for Columbia to be just a little bit more like heaven every single day. And we think the primary way that we should accomplish that is by each of us having our lives ongoingly changed by Jesus. And I'll show you where we get this concept and why we think those thoughts are connected. And then what we'll do from this point forward is look at some intentional practices that we have agreed to together as members that we're stepping in to in the hopes of becoming the kinds of people that we believe make Columbia a little bit more like heaven every day. So as part of all of this, we got some, uh, some resources I want to highlight for you before we get into today's sermon. In the lobby and on our series page on our website, we have a bookstore that has some helpful titles that we have pulled, for, uh, pulled from for this series. And so you can catch those outside in the lobby or on our website. Um, some books that we have used and that have been influential for us. One time, uh, one time somebody told me that leaders are readers. And that rhymes, so I believe it is true. And if you'd like to become a leader, then you need to be a reader. Also, on our series page on our website and then in your seat... We have a daily scripture reading plan that goes along with the sermon series. And so uh, we'll be going through that together. If you already have something that you're reading or studying on your own, keep doing it. That's great. If you are not currently studying something intentionally, then let's just do that together. And when we see each other, we'll have something we can chat about and talk about what we're learning. That'll keep us anchored to scripture, and those are actually planned out to correspond in some ways to what the sermons will be on Sunday. And then, as a part of that... We had an idea we want to test out for the fall. We were thinking, what if we got together and did our daily reading uh, once a week in the same place? And so Wednesday morning, starting this Wednesday at 7 a.m., if you would like to come, we will meet right next door in our newly renovated Barnwell building, and we will provide some coffee and some breakfast, and we'll do the daily reading together. We've got some study questions we'll work through, and we'll get to pray for each other before we head off for whatever the day uh, has for us. And so you're invited to do that. We'd love for you to be there. 
starting Wednesday this week at 7 a.m. It'll be 7 to 8. So all that to say, uh, we love you guys, and we want to do everything we can to help you grow in your love for Jesus, and that's what all of this is about. So uh, let's get going with the, uh, the sermon for today as introduction to our new series. So grab a Bible and turn to the book of Matthew. Turn to the book of Matthew. I want to lay out some foundation here for how we approach our philosophy of ministry as a church and why we think it is critical that we be very clear about the kinds of people that we are seeking to become. Matthew, we're going to do today what you might call uh, a survey of the book of Matthew, a brief uh, survey, but a survey nonetheless. So you could be helped by holding a paper Bible. I know some of you look on a device, and that's fine if you want to do that, uh, but it might be helpful to have a paper Bible just so you can kind of flip and see things and see connections. That's up to you. If you're the kind of person who normally toggles between the Bible app and Instagram during the sermon, then please grab a paper Bible. You know I can see you, right? Like, I see you guys when you don't pay attention to me. Like, I see you the way you see me. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Let's start at the very beginning of the book of Matthew, and we're going to do a little bit of a breeze through some of the highlights in the book of Matthew to try to lay a bit of the foundation for why we approach ministry and think about what we're doing as a church the way that we do. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Here's how the first verse of the New Testament begins. Matthew writing his biography of the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus. He says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew, right off the bat, is interested in placing the person of Jesus in the context of the entire Bible. He's saying that Jesus has always been the plan, All the way back to the beginning. The Old Testament teaches us that God created the world perfectly. The Hebrew word is shalom. It means peace. Everything was right and good. Ever since uh, our first parents rebelled against God, things have broken down. They began to declare autonomy from God and began to try to establish their own kingdom. And it turns out very quickly that the kingdom they were establishing was not so great. It goes dark fairly quickly. Their son kills his brother, and we've got murder introduced into the equation. By Genesis chapter 6, the wickedness of human beings has gone so bad, so dark, so quick, that God actually says every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil only continually. I'm going to let that plane do its business. So the Bible gives us this picture that humanity, this prized and miraculous line of beings created in God's own image, have been ruined. That something has gone bad. That we remain His image bearers, but the image of God on us is now marred, it's corrupted, and that we are innately broken. This is the historical and biblical explanation for what you see when you look at your news updates every day. This explains why you have done the worst things that you have done. This explains why people have done the worst things that they have done to you. There's something deep and foundationally cracked in our nature. And so in chapter 12 of Genesis, God comes to a man named Abraham, and he tells him that through him, he intends to bless all the nations of the earth. And the rest of the Old Testament is that story of how God started to call a people to himself and give them guidelines for how to live under his good authority and how to begin to think about atoning for sin, and how sin needs to be atoned for and dealt with. 
And it's a difficult story, but you can trace all the way through the lineage outlined in Matthew chapter 1, including all the names you can barely pronounce, all the way until this coming of Jesus, who comes as the promised one, the Messiah, a savior and a king, who has been said will fully and finally fix the reality of our sin problem. So Matthew is announcing this with his beginning point. Flip over to chapter 3. Jesus is about to begin his earthly ministry, and John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, is preaching. And the theme of his preaching is recorded in the beginning of these uh, couple of verses of chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist became preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What you'll see throughout the book of Matthew is that this is a dominant theme, this idea of the kingdom of heaven, that the idea that God is restoring his good reign and rule to fix the ruined state of human nature, that he's bringing his rule down here. And since ancient kings were concerned with lineage, the book of Matthew starts with one as the first step in the argument that Jesus is the king of heaven and earth. Matthew is declaring to everybody, the time we've been waiting on since Abraham is here, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is here, and the rule and reign of God is about to break in on the earth. So that's the theme of John the Baptist's preaching ministry. He says, repent, turn from the way you've been living, because the kingdom of heaven is here now. What you've been waiting for is about to break through. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is about to start his public ministry. Pick it up in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus intends to be about bringing heaven to earth. And the very next thing that he does is actually really important because it sets the stage for the rest of his ministry and gives us some insight into the kind of king Jesus is and to how his kingdom will spread. So keep reading verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. All right, so stay with me here. Let me explain a couple of things, because for the original audience, there were a few things that would have been clarified just with this little interaction. The first is that in Jewish tradition, Jesus here is stepping into the role of a rabbi. The rabbi was a professional teacher in Judaism who would spend his life studying the scriptures and thinking about and developing a teaching that integrated all of his insights and theological convictions into something that was called a yoke, Y-O-K-E, not yolk, like what's in your egg, yoke. It's this comprehensive form of teaching that's truth and also how that truth would be practically applied in life. And so what a rabbi would do is that he would call disciples or followers to himself, and he would teach them, and then he would model for them the lived-out effects of that teaching. So when I was in college, I thought discipling someone meant you met at Starbucks once or twice a week to talk about lust and how to study the Bible. That's not at all what the Bible means when it talks about discipleship. The first century model was completely different than that. They would spend almost every waking hour together if you were a rabbi's disciple. You would study together. You would live together. You would work together. Theologian Ray Vanderlyn 
actually talks about an old Jewish blessing that people would say to one another. And the blessing was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. This is the idea that you'd be following so close to your rabbi that as he walked down dirty, dusty roads and he kicked up dirt and dust behind him, you would be right there to have it all caked over you. This was a blessing. May you follow so closely to your rabbi that his very dust covers you. So this was how it worked. It was the idea of a lifelong apprenticeship. And they would be changed gradually over time as they followed this rabbi. And this this life transformation would happen primarily through two things. Teaching and then practice. Teaching or truth and then living out the practical effects of that teaching or that truth. So rabbis would say things like, you've heard this, but I tell you this. He would invite his followers, his disciples, to trade in their old ways of thinking for new ways of thinking. And then they would practice those. Sometimes people call these things uh, spiritual disciplines or, or habits, but they were just ways of life that logically follow and put into practice the new truths that you're orienting yourself around. Such as, uh, if you believe the teaching that God is sovereign and good and accessible, then pray to Him. It's a, a practice that logically follows the belief you say you hold. If you believe that God is wiser than you, then spend time meditating on His Word. If you believe that other people are made in God's image, then serve them. If you believe that you are a sinner, then confess and turn from sin. If you believe that God is the one who takes care of you, then become a generous person. This is teaching, and this is practice that logically follows that teaching. So disciples were called to adopt the teaching of of their rabbi and then quite literally adopt his way of life. So if he fasted, they fasted. If he withdrew for solitude, they withdrew for solitude. So that gradually over time, they would be an embodiment of the teaching of their rabbi in such a way that they became countercultural, compelling people. And both are critical, teaching and practice. In my opinion, the American church tends to focus mostly on teaching to great detriment of our practice. We are almost all teaching and very little practice. We are set up to produce bobblehead Christians with minds full of facts, but very shriveled up bodies because we are not implementing and putting those true facts into practice in daily, regular, normative ways. Teaching and practice are critical. Look back at verses 19 and 20 real quick. Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So, for a long time, that struck me as cheesy. Like, Like Jesus was having a dad joke moment, you know. He walks up, hey, what are you guys doing? Fishing? Do you wanna you wanna follow me and fish for people? <laughs> and they drop everything and go and go follow him. Like, man, that's just, this guy's clever. I'm gonna follow him. <laughs> that's not really what's going on. So what Jesus just did was a loaded, 
loaded statement. For first century Jews, they knew exactly what he was doing. It's actually a reference to Jeremiah chapter 16, where God speaks about his people who are scattered, who are not able currently to live life under his good reign and rule. And God says, one day I promise you, I will send fishermen who will reel my people back in so they can live life under my good rule and reign in my kingdom. He goes on to say, one day I will send hunters who will hunt my people down and bring them back under my good, gracious reign and rule. So when Jesus says, do you want to be fishermen? They immediately knew this is a messianic claim. Jesus is claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah, and he's inviting us to join him in his mission to gather God's people together to reorient themselves under God's good reign and rule. It's not a corny dad joke at all, which is why they immediately leave their nets to follow him. It's an invitation to become these sort of head-turning, captivating, compelling people who fully embody the teaching and the practices of their rabbi. So, uh, one of our recommended reads for the series is a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. It is a contemporary classic written by a man named Robert Coleman. Here's how he talks about this. He says, It all started by Jesus calling a few men to follow him. This revealed immediately the direction his evangelistic strategy would take. His concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men some of the multitudes would follow. Remarkable as it may seem, Jesus started to gather these men before he ever organized an evangelistic campaign or even preached a sermon in public. Men were to be his method of winning the world to God. When he says that, he's being gender inclusive. He's just using men as a catch-all. So men and women were to be his method of winning the world to God. You move forward in the book of Matthew, and you come upon the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. It's a master course on a rabbi giving his yoke or his teaching. And so Jesus over and over in this sermon will say things like, you've heard it said, but I actually say this is what's true. And he teaches them about anger and about lust and divorce and retaliation and how to love your enemies. And he talks about fasting and worry and prayer and morality and money. And over and over and over again, he says, this is true, so live your life this way, teaching and practice. In chapter 6, go there with me now, and let's look at this real quick. Chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Jesus is in the middle of teaching on the practice of prayer. And he says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the aim. This is Jesus' end game for God's will to be done on the earth as it is in heaven, for God's kingdom to come to the earth where the good, beautiful reign and rule of God brings healing and restoration for all that sin has broken in us. As you move out of the Sermon on the Mount, you continue to see that Jesus has this authority to do everything he's telling his followers to do and everything that he claims that he can do. So he's got the authority to forgive sin, to cast out demons, to heal the sick and the paralyzed and the leper and the dead. And in the middle of some of those things, in Matthew chapter 9, we get another insight into how Jesus thinks he needs to go about 
bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. Here's what he says in chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus looks out at this crowd. It says he has compassion, this gut-level care and concern. And he says to his disciples, to those who are being trained through teaching and practice to be like him and do what he did, he says, there are not enough of us. That is the problem. We need more people who've been shaped and trained by teaching and practice over time to be here. The need is everywhere, but the disciples are few. And so he ends it by saying, so pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more disciples so that all of these people who are helplessly wrecked and ruined by sin can find what they need in me, can find redemption and renewal and access to God the Father through me so that their lives can begin to be healed and reoriented back around the good reign and rule of God. Jesus goes on from here to continue to minister, continue to preach and teach. Eventually, his claims of being a king of a new kingdom get him in some trouble. So the leading authorities of the day, the religious rulers and the political rulers, conspire against him. Eventually he is executed, a criminal's execution on a cross. Jesus dies, what we now know is, dies for our sin to gain victory over sin. Jesus raises from the dead three days later, defeating the power of sin, defeating the power of death. After he's risen from the dead, he's back with his disciples at the very end of the book of Matthew. Flip all the way over, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Some of Jesus' parting words to these followers who have been, quote, unquote, covered in his dust for the entirety of his ministry. It says now, picking it up in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. (laughs) This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. These people watched Jesus as he healed the sick, raised the dead, walked on water. They watched him die. Now he is standing in front of them alive. He's about to float up through the clouds to heaven where he will take his place at the right hand of God. Many of them worship him because, of course, this is God in the flesh. And some of them are like, I don't know, man. I don't know. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. Not know that I've seen enough. We need to see a little bit more. It's hilarious to me. It gives me a lot of hope, actually. Verse 18 Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is one of those lines, the way that C.S. Lewis talked about it is, you can't just put Jesus in a good teacher category. He won't let you. C.S. Lewis said, you got to decide, is he a liar? 
is he a lunatic or is he Lord? This is one of those places where he kind of forces that on you. All authority on heaven and earth is mine. This gentleman is either crazy, this gentleman is either a con artist, he's a liar, or this gentleman is the Lord of heaven and earth. These are the options available to you. This is one of the reasons why C.S. Lewis made that argument. Who says that? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. So Jesus looks at these at these disciples whom he has spent countless hours with teaching and training, and he says, I'm sending you out. Go, and you now make disciples. Make others that look like you do now. So baptize them as they repent of sin and trust God alone for their salvation. And don't just meet with them for an hour at Starbucks. I want you to teach them all of the way of life that I've taught to you. I want full practice, everything that you've learned, integrated into your way of life. And then Jesus promises that he'll send his spirit to be the indwelling presence of God in our lives. Jesus says, this is the plan. So he is a king unlike any other king. He brings his kingdom not through force or military might or manipulation, but instead through compelling, spirit-empowered disciples, through fishers of men, through remaking deformed humans into these compelling people who embody the teaching and the good reign and rule of God so that the kingdom of God would spread coming down from heaven to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and eventually to Asia and Europe and Africa and Colombia South Carolina. He's after spirit-empowered disciples who actually follow him and do the things that he's commanded us to do. So, hard transition. As we think about what we do as a church, we're not going to stray too far away from the example of Jesus. We're not going to get creative with it. We'll stick with Jesus' plan. So our aim is is for Columbia to look a little bit more like heaven every day. We want to see the kingdom of God brought to bear here more and more every single day. That's the plan. That's the aim. That's the goal. And the strategy to get there is the same as Jesus's. We want over time gradually to become compelling disciples, people whose lives slowly but surely are being transformed into his image. We want to have be individuals who are covered in the dust of our rabbi as God slowly through his spirit and intentionally over time forms us through teaching and through practice. Your life being changed by Jesus is our church's plan. That's it. You're what we got. My life being changed by Jesus. That's the plan. We're pushing all our chips there in learning how to follow Jesus faithfully together and becoming the kinds of people who can be fishers of men, who can announce that the kingdom of God is advancing and is being brought to bear on the earth and who can represent that faithfully. Uh, we are not interested in being successful as a church in any other way. 
We have no other measurements for success. Uh, to put it into business terms, our people are our brand. For better or for worse. Our people are our brand. Our model is not that we will hire people to be professionals and try to keep everyone inspired enough so that they stick around. Our model is that we want to train and equip hundreds of missionaries, hundreds of disciples to scatter all over our city. And the success of that mission rises and falls on that. It is contingent on you and I taking responsibility for our own growth. It is your responsibility to grow in Christ. And the people around you can help. Your pastors want to help. But you are responsible for your growth and no one else. And this is how we actually measure success. When we think about, are we doing what we need to be doing as a church? We measure it by life change. Not by numbers, not by size, by changed lives. Now, do we want a lot of changed lives? Absolutely. Of course. But for us, it's all about when people who didn't know Jesus step into faith and step into relationship with Him. That's a win. When people who are addicted are set free, that's what we're after. When people who are selfish and greedy start giving away as much as they can, when people who are eaten up with generational sin and brokenness begin to heal and deal with their past so they don't pass those same sins on to their kids, that's the kind of stuff that we're after. That's what we want to be good at. We want to be excellent at getting people into relationship, making disciples through relationships. We want to excel there. Honestly, everything else, we just want to do good enough. So our Sunday gatherings, well, we just wanted to be good enough. I, I am not trying to change your life with my sermons. That's not how it works. I want to open the Word of God, and whoever is preaching wants to open the Word of God. We want to teach faithfully. We want to sing and worship. We want to pray. We want to take communion. We want to reflect in the hopes that in our gatherings, we'll just move towards God just a little bit. Not change your life, shock and awe, just a step. And what will happen over time is that if you'll participate faithfully and you'll consistently take little small steps towards God every Sunday, you'll look back in a couple of years and you'll say, wow, I've actually grown a lot. But it'll be sustainable growth. It won't be flash in the pan. It won't be mountaintop experience and then you're back to the same way of life that you came from a few weeks later. This will be sustainable growth over time. This is what we want in your life groups. We want slow, sustainable, progressive sanctification happening. So there are a lot of things as a church. We just want to do good enough. Our facilities, we just want them to be good enough. Just barely. Like we meet in a cinder block warehouse that used to be a nightclub. <laughs> it's fine. And it's fine. It's fine. Our production value on Sunday, we could invest a lot of money to have a higher production value in our gatherings with fog machines and moving lights and lasers. And that's not wrong, it's just that my issue is when you go to work tomorrow, there won't be fog machine or lasers to help you love Jesus. <laughs> it's just you and God's Spirit, make or break. No emotionally moving worship music playing in the background. Unless you work at like Chick-fil-A or something. 
So what we're after is for you to be a compelling person there. That's the plan. Most of the people in Columbia who need Jesus are not going to just stumble in here on a Sunday morning anyway. I mean, some will. Some of you are our guests, and you're here, and you're just checking us out, and that's fantastic. But most of the people who need Jesus in Columbia are the ones that you work with and that you live beside. They're your neighbors. They're your friends. They're on your softball team. They're at your kid's soccer game. So I'm more concerned with you being a compelling person when you go off to your business meeting on Monday than I am with our gatherings being shock and awe, compelling with high production value. We want Sundays to be good enough to help you take steps towards God so that over time you grow into the kind of person who is a compelling person. And so one of the ways that we try as best we can to lead in that direction is by having some uh, mutually agreed upon things that we are all going to attempt to step into together. Some practices that we, uh, those of us who are members, have all said, I will practice these things in the hopes that I become the kind of person that Jesus wants me to become. We call them our member covenant practices. We talk about them in our Midtown class. And we actually want to take some time this fall, as we move into a new ministry year, to zoom in on those and make sure we have good clarity as to what the things are that we've said we are going to do together, what these practices are that we have mutually agreed upon stepping into so that we take the truth of God's Word and it becomes, it becomes integrated into our lives in the form of practice. And so there are seven things that for those of us who are members, we have all agreed that we would seek to embody um, the idea that we would be uh, abiding with Jesus in Scripture and in prayer, we want to step into community. We want to be people who are marked by confession and repentance. That we want mission to be a significant component in our lives. That we want to be generous people. We want to serve others. And we want to consistently participate in gatherings as the corporate expression of the fact that we are God's people who've been called to be his group. So for the next seven weeks, we want to zoom in on each of those. And in some ways, this is as much for those of you who've been around seven, eight, nine years as it is for anybody who's new. It is so easy to just gradually veer off from what we set out to do in the beginning. So it'll be a good, healthy checkup for us on, are we just talking a good game, or are we actually living and walking out the things that we said we agreed to initially? So that's what we're after, and this is all just set up to explain why it is that we believe the best strategy for making Columbia more like heaven is to have compelling people who are ongoingly and gradually changed by Jesus. And we think this is the best strategy because it was Jesus' strategy. So let me pray for us, and next week we'll begin to zoom in on some of these practices. Jesus, thank you that you are a king like none other. Thank you that you have come on a rescue mission to seek and save what was lost, that you are about bringing the kingdom of heaven here to bear on the earth. And we ask for more of that, God, in our lives individually and in our city as a whole. Jesus, we ask that through um, our times of teaching coming up over the next few weeks, that you would help us to take small incremental steps. God, would you work in our lives in such a way that we slowly and gradually are formed into your image, that we might be compelling countercultural people who are about your mission to invite more people into your kingdom. And Lord, may the result of all of this be that Columbia looks a little bit more like heaven every single day. And we ask this for your glory and our good. Amen.